Hello, and welcome to Fresh Off the Vine. I'm Karen Coyne, and today we are going to talk about estate planning for young families. My guest today is Anne-Marie Rotz. She is an attorney and principal of Rotz Law Offices, LLC. Anne grew up in Waynesboro, Pennsylvania, just up the street from here, and returned to the area in 2004. She completed her undergraduate work at the George Washington University and spent one year at New College, Oxford University. She also attended the University of Georgia Law School, graduating with honors. And Anne is a graduate of Leadership Washington County and Leadership Maryland. In 2016, the Daily Mail named Anne one of Maryland's 100 leading women. She focuses her legal practice on estate planning and commercial work in Maryland and Pennsylvania, and hopefully a few more states. Hint, hint. (laughs) She is married with one child, two stepchildren, and two dogs. Welcome, Anne. Thank you, Karen. Yes, I'm so glad that we are having this conversation today. So a little bit of background. Statistics show that roughly somewhere between 55 and 60% of Americans don't have a will or an estate plan in place. And I would even say that those that do, many times those documents are outdated right? And you probably see the same. And I saw an article just recently that said, Prince didn't have a will and neither do 60% of Americans. <laughs> and I thought, dang, that would have made a great podcast title. But unfortunately, that was already taken. So, you know, I think, I mean, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you today about young families doing estate planning is too many times, I think a lot of people think that they're too young or maybe not rich, don't have enough money or stuff to do estate planning. And that's just not the case, right? That's correct. Anyone who has a child should have an estate plan in place, whether they have a positive or negative net worth. So parents who have just had children or who have children need to be thinking about what happens to that child if something happens to both of the parents. So who's going to raise the child, but also who's going to oversee any assets that might come to that child through life insurance or retirement accounts or the sale of a home, any of those things should be addressed. So for those of us who are younger and have younger children, estate plans aren't necessarily about avoiding taxes and making sure assets are going to different individuals, but they're more about making sure that our children are going to be taken care of as we want them to be taken care of. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think that's an important consideration because that has nothing to do with, like you said, tax planning or even if you have a negative net worth, it's, these are totally entirely separate issues. So kind of four categories that I wanted to make sure we hit today, considerations for parents of minor children, considerations for parents of children that are maybe in college or say over age 18, considerations for single parents, and then also for those parents of children with disabilities or special needs. Okay kind of going back to what you were saying about providing for our children, right? One of the things I think about too is that death is not the only issue at hand. People always think like state planning is about when I die. But as you know, sometimes it's about not if you die, but someone could get into an accident. Someone could become incapacitated, could be involved in a random act of violence. And, you know, then their life is forever changed. So you have these other considerations that go, it's not just about death. Is what I'm trying to say. Correct. And while I think wills are important, I think they are the least important document that we do when we work on estate planning. I think by far the most important document that you can have is a medical power of attorney 
or a healthcare advance directive that has living will provisions, no matter how young and healthy you may be, because just like you said, you never know what's going to happen. And for those of us who are young and healthy, it's a catastrophic event that comes as a shock to family. And so you want to already have these documents in place and have decisions made so that the people who are trying to take care of you don't also have the burden of trying to figure out exactly what you would have wanted and who you would have wanted to be making decisions. Likewise, it's very important to have a financial power of attorney. So that document would give someone the ability to handle your financial affairs if you're not able to. And it could be because you're recovering from a car accident, or it could be because something more long-term has happened. You've had a stroke, you're not able to do it. And if you don't have that document, what happens is that someone has to go to a court and seek appointment as a guardian. Mm -hmm. And while that process is not legally difficult, it's very gut-wrenching for family members to go through Um, because they have to present evidence sometimes in front of you about why why you shouldn't be able to handle your own financial matters and make your own legal decisions. And you've lost the ability at that point then to decide who should be handling those things for Mm -hmm. you. So for some people, the person who gets appointed as guardian is the person they would have appointed anyway but it's not a guarantee. Right. And again, you've just made things more difficult for the people who were already stressed and probably heartbroken at what has happened. And guardianships are expensive. Okay. There's a lot of legal work that goes into them. So while they're not necessarily challenging, they require time Mm. and that means money. And then the other thing is that a court appointed guardian is subject to court oversight. So they have annual filings that they have to make that an agent under a power of attorney doesn't have to make. Oh, that's a good point. So they're not only handling your affairs for you, but now they have to answer to a court and they have to remember that they have pretty comprehensive filings that have to be made every year. And for most people, that's just not something else we want to have to do. Right. Oh my goodness. Yeah, that sounds like a nightmare. So you already introduced some of the basic documents and what they do, right? So in addition to, well, and maybe we should take a step back and talk about, you know, why everyone needs to have a will and some of these other documents you just mentioned. So there's a will, there's a medical directive, power of attorney. So those are the three basic. So you want to have a will because your will governs what happens to your assets upon your death. And for those of us with minor children, also says who should raise our children and how assets should be handled for those children. Children under 18 in most states cannot directly own property. So you have to appoint someone to handle that property for them. And not everyone is lucky enough to have either a co-parent or a close family member who is responsible enough to handle those assets. Mm -hmm. So you need to make sure that you've appointed someone in those cases. You want to make sure you have a financial power of attorney. That document is effective during your lifetime and it gives someone the ability to step in and take over finances for you if you're not able to do it and then kind of 
step back out of the picture when you are able to take back over. Mm -hmm. And then the medical power of attorney or advanced directive, they're called different things in different states. That is also valid during your lifetime. And that gives someone the ability to work with your doctors only if you cannot. That document should contain a living will, which should be a general statement of how you feel about life-sustaining measures if you're in a terminal or otherwise death is imminent. Mm -hmm. So it's important to differentiate. Some of these documents come into play at death, but some of them could come into play, like you said, in a catastrophic situation or, you know, but it would be before death would be while you were alive. Correct. Okay. That's a very helpful introduction to what those documents are and why they do. And I think hopefully if, you know, if you're a young parent or a parent of young children and you're listening and you don't have, you haven't yet created your documents, this will give you kind of that push to, to get moving. Sometimes, a lot of times what I see is where people get stuck is they don't know who to name. Maybe they don't have a trusted family member or family lives far away. What do you recommend to those people where they're just, they know they need to do it and they're trying to get an action on it, but they're just stuck? Obviously, these decisions vary from family to family and individual to individual in what works best, but I really push my clients to make sure they're making the decision that is best for them, no matter what their age or what their condition. A lot of people think that because they're married, their spouse needs to be appointed to everything, or because they have a sibling, that it should be their sibling, or for older clients, that because they have a child that it should be the child, but you really need to evaluate who's going to be able to handle the responsibility that you're giving them. And this is not a time for making a decision because it's polite Mm -hmm. or because it's the expected thing to do. A lot of families that I work with don't have family that are close, whether it's because of geographical distance or just strain in family relationships. And so we look to Who are your close and trusted friends? Who are the people that you rely on maybe to pick up your kid after school if you can't get there because something has arisen? Or who helps you out if you're sick? Who fills in in those times? And then for certain things like a financial agent, you may have a professional who could serve in that capacity. So your financial advisor or maybe an accountant that you work with. So it doesn't have to be limited just to family, although that's what we tend to look to first. Right, right. And then make sure you have that conversation with those people, right? Don't just name your best friend (laughs) without asking your best friend. (laughs) Well, the good news is that anyone you appoint has the right to refuse. Right. So, and it is important to know that because some people think, you know, if they're appointing someone now, maybe in 15 years, that individual isn't going to be at a place in their life when they can handle the responsibility. And that's fine because they can refuse it at that point. And that's why we name successors in the document. So if you have appointed your best friend and they have moved away or they have had children and now they don't feel like they can handle the additional responsibility, they can refuse the appointment and then it goes to the next person. And that's why we always have two and try to have three people appointed to make sure that you don't run out of individuals who are eligible to serve. Mm -hmm. Yes. 
three. That's good. I like a backup to the backup, but a backup right. to the backup to the backup. <laughs> That's pretty thorough, Anne. So we've covered a lot of the considerations for parents of minor children, mm-hmm. I believe. There are some additional considerations for parents of children that are 18 or over, I think that often go overlooked. I have this conversation a lot of times, and usually it's when kids are going off to college. That's not always the case. We know everyone doesn't go off to college, but talk to us a little bit about some of the planning considerations for children for who are now over the age of 18 or 18 or over, I should say. Sure. So in most states, as soon as you hit 18, you magically become an adult. Um, <laughs> I like how you said that. <laughs> yeah. So while science tells us that brains don't fully develop until 25, the law says you're all set by the age of 18. So what parents need to know is that at the age of 18, their children can own financial assets. So that means if something unexpected happens to you and your child has turned 18 and you don't have a will or you don't have a good will, that maybe they're inheriting a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of assets. Mm -hmm. And there is nothing to assist that child in managing those assets. And in situations like that, we see people come out of the woodwork who now are best friends with that child and who need a car or need a place to stay or whatever. And so before you know it, all of that is gone and it hasn't benefited the child or the child has kind of frivolously spent it maybe on a big trip or gambling or God forbid if they have an addiction of some kind. So there are no protections there to help that child. On the reverse side of that, this may be especially important for families whose children are going off somewhere to some sort of vocational training or college or the military, though I think the military actually handles this on your behalf, Right, is that as soon as your child turns 18, you are no longer their legal guardian, which means that if they have to be seen at the hospital when they're away at college, the doctor can't violate HIPAA and share information with you unless the child expressly gives permission. Mm -hmm. So it is probably worthwhile for your child to have a healthcare advance directive or a medical power of attorney if that child is comfortable with making sure the parents are able to obtain information or make decisions if the child is not able to. Mm -hmm. And depending on the specific situation, it may also make sense to have a financial power of attorney. But I know a lot of parents have gotten hamstrung by HIPAA protections. Absolutely. When their child is in college. And most of us, I think, assume that, well, that's still my child. Yeah. And some parents And think, I paid the bill, by the way. <laughs> right. And some parents think that by writing the check, that somehow matters. But HIPAA is HIPAA. And its protections come into play. And those medical professionals are not able to share that information. Mm-hmm. And so, especially if your child has left home to go away to school or some other sort of training, it's worthwhile having this conversation with them yeah. to make sure that 
they understand and you understand. Right. And I think from the worst case scenario too, of, you know, what if they're in a situation, they become incapacitated, not just, you know, for the, maybe the routine medical stuff where they might be thinking, well, mom, you don't need to see that. (laughs) You don't need to know what's going on there. You know, from the standpoint of, Hey, kid, you know, listen, sweetheart, I, you know, if anything happens to you, you're in a bad car accident or there's some type of incident on campus. My hands are tied. Correct. And in situations like that, someone needs to be able to make medical decisions, obviously, but someone also needs to be able to make financial decisions to talk to insurance companies. If it's something that is catastrophic and perhaps going to be long lasting, then you want someone to have the legal authority to apply for disability coverage, um, whether through an insurance program or through the federal government. So there are lots of things that we don't think about until, unfortunately, we're in the thick of them. Right. So to take care of all of these things in advance while everyone's healthy and everything's fine, and then we hope that they never have to be used. Right. And that's kind of the Murphy's Law of planning. (laughs) I kind of almost look at it as like a bulletproof shield. Like if you do the planning, you're probability is yeah you're probably never gonna need you're it. probably never gonna need it hopefully probably never gonna need it right it just does seem like disaster will strike when you're not prepared so I definitely encourage you know my clients of children going off to school especially that they connect with their attorney and get those documents updated for those children what about considerations for single parents we had a conversation recently and this came up about some of the considerations regarding guardianship Right. So for individuals who are single parents, there is the additional consideration that you may not have another parent who is ready, willing, and able to step in and take over if either something happens and you have died and so you obviously cannot raise your child or something has happened where you are alive but you are not able to care for your child for some temporary period of time for some reason. So most states allow for what's called a standby guardianship. So this would allow a parent to appoint someone other than the other parent who is living to care for their child if they become temporarily or permanently incapacitated. Again, it's something that you do in advance so that it's there if you ever need it. And what it does, it's kind of like a power of attorney, except that it governs your child. And it gives someone immediate ability to step in and take over things for your child, like enrolling them in school Mm. or talking to their teacher or getting them non-emergency medical care, all of those types of things. If you don't have that document, then what happens is someone, again, has to go get guardianship. And that process can take time. And so there can be this limbo period where there's no legal decision maker for a child. And it just causes stress that's not necessary. Mm -hmm. Is that something that generally comes into play if, well, I was thinking initially, like if single, single parents, so like maybe someone who's widowed or never was married, But in cases where, let's say, there is another parent who's living or there, would they be a default kind of guardian through the court system if they, you know, right? That's the whole purpose of the guardianship is to... Well, it can be. So it applies in all of those situations that you addressed. So if someone is a single parent because the other parent has died, then you want to have the standby guardianship because you don't have someone who can assume that authority. 
if you're a single parent because the other parent has just never availed themselves of being a parent, but they're still out there, right. you can still do a standby guardianship. In some states, you're required to have that parent consent. But I think sometimes it's worthwhile having the document prepared, even if that parent doesn't consent, because it serves as evidence later, if necessary, of who you wanted to care for that child. So unfortunately, just because a parent has never, ever, ever been involved in raising their child doesn't mean they don't have a legal right Right. to do so. Oh, yeah. And so while if you're alive and you're the parent who has always been primary caregiver, you're able to defend a custody action or whatever you need to in order to keep custody of your child, it gets a lot harder for a grandparent or a sibling or a friend to do the same. So you, even if you can't get the consent of that person because they won't consent or because you don't know exactly where they are, Uh having the standby guardianship documentation at least puts you part of the way down the path and serves as evidence of who you want to have step in and care for your child. That makes a lot of sense. That's a really good point. Any other considerations for single parents in particular? No, other than I think most of us who have another parent who is involved often look to that individual to serve certain roles, and a single parent doesn't have that. So sometimes it can be a little bit harder to come up with the individuals you want to serve in certain capacities, but it just might require being a little bit more creative of who you're thinking about. Mm Opinions expressed are those of Karen Coyne and not those of Raymond James Financial Services or Raymond James. Securities offered through Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated, member FINRA SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Raymond James Financial Services Advisors Incorporated. Karen Coyne Strategic Wealth Advisor located at 12920 Connemar Drive, Suite 202, Hagerstown, Maryland, 21742, 301-739-7002. Raymond James is not affiliated with Ann Rotz or Rotz Law Offices, LLC. Any opinions are those of Ann Rotz and not necessarily those of Raymond James. This podcast is meant to be informational. For legal advice, please consult your attorney.